The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown to zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast and radio show. Today, we're speaking with Ryan Shearman. He's the founder and CEO of Aether Diamonds. Did I say that right? Ether Diamonds. Ether Diamonds. Cool. Okay. But it's spelled A-E-T-H-E-R. Uh, if you're looking it up and you want to Google it and follow along uh, with what we're talking about. So Ether Diamonds. So Ryan, welcome to the show. What an amazing company you've created. Thanks for having me. Very excited for, for this conversation. Yeah, me too. So, and and you know what? I think my listeners are going to be really excited because I've heard uh, I've heard them talking about Ether um, quite a bit. So, um, tell us. So, what what is Ether? So, essentially, we like to bucket ourselves as a as a carbon tech company. You know, not not necessarily a jewelry company, not necessarily a diamond company. Uh, we manipulate carbon atoms to our will. Uh, we bend them to our will, as I like to say. Uh, and essentially what we've gone to market with is the first carbon negative diamonds made entirely from carbon that has been extracted from the atmosphere. So diamonds are crystalline carbon. Carbon is what is warming our planet. We had this notion that we could take the one harmful form of carbon and manipulate it and transform it into this beautiful form of carbon that we all know and love. And, and that's what we've set out to do. And, uh, and we launched the brand in December, 2020. It's been about, I think it's 10 weeks as of yesterday that we've been in market and, uh, it's been really exciting for us. Wow. So you're super new. So are these diamonds available for people to buy already? So Yes and no. I say yes and no because we've actually had too much demand and, and we're, we're on a wait list right now. So I do encourage wow. consumers who are, are interested to get their name on the wait list. So, you know, they're, they're in the queue. Um, but uh, we, are, we are producing these diamonds right now as fast as we possibly can. And one of our major initiatives this year is to be ramping up our production capacity. Uh, and that's going well so far. Awesome. Okay. Well, let's start at the beginning. And if you could walk us through the process, that would be super cool. So uh, we're putting a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere with all our fossil fuels. Um, I think we all know that. And uh, you have created something that is taking that out of the air. So can we start kind of at that stage? Sure. And actually the upfront carbon collection does not happen at our facility. That happens in conjunction with a partner. Uh, ultimately, we will be procuring the hardware and doing that vertically uh, on one location. But uh, we do work with a partner who's developed the, the actual process to take the carbon out of the air. And that's something that a number of companies are working on today. When we set out to do this, we said, do we want to figure out how to do all of it? Or do we want to focus on the area that really, you know, is is critical and untouched, untapped? And that was the middle ground between direct air capture and diamond synthesis. So people have known how to grow a diamond in a laboratory environment for some time now. And, you know, there were a couple companies that were coming to the forefront of the direct air capture conversation. And we said, you know, nobody has figured out how to marry these two technologies. And that's what we've set out to do. So the process is really simple. In fact, um, it's not, it's quite complicated <laughs> from a, from a chemical engineering perspective, <clears throat> but in broad strokes, step one is to extract the carbon dioxide from the air. Step two is to convert and purify that carbon dioxide into a usable hydrocarbon. 
a hydrocarbon is essentially what our fossil fuels are, right? So whereas today's lab-grown diamond companies are producing diamonds with carbon that is sourced from fossil fuels that come from the ground, we said, you know, we don't want to do that. We want to synthesize our own hydrocarbons using this atmospheric CO2. A hydrocarbon is just uh, a chain of atoms, uh, hydrogen and carbon. They bond together and uh, oftentimes these are used as fuel sources. So uh, we are taking carbon from the air. We are essentially stitching it together with, with green hydrogen that we are, are generating through uh, the splitting of water atoms or water molecules. And then from there, uh, we can take that hydrocarbon and put it into a diamond reactor and grow a diamond layer by layer, atom by atom over the course of about four weeks. Wow, that's so quick because I think in nature, doesn't it take a really long time to form a diamond or is it instant? I'm not sure. Well, that's, that's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a misnomer. Essentially, the way diamonds were formed, they, they all happened as the Earth's uh, crust was cooling, right? And they, and they typically, kimberlite deposits, uh, which is the, the geological rock formation that diamond is found They're inside. Like a tube. They're like a tube, aren't they? Like a kimberlite is kind of like a tube? So they're, they're, yeah, well, they're, they're, they're oftentimes can be uh, tubular kimberlite formations because these were uh, where volcanoes were located and they're actually former lava shoots. Cool. So, yeah. so the diamonds that, that we find in the ground, uh, it's not that they take a very long time to create. It's that they were created a very long time ago. So every, uh-huh. every diamond that has been mined from the ground to be used for jewelry or other purposes was formed in the Earth's crust billions of years ago. So that's the natural, the natural way. And so we have a, we have some diamond mines up north in Canada. I know that. And uh, I remember someone's dad in university worked for one of the companies as a geologist, and they would go out and try to find these um, kimberlites so that they could find where diamonds were. And then, um, well, let, let's just uh, before we get back to your your tech and and what you're doing um, for listeners, let's just paint a little bit of, of a picture of the kind of not so sustainable part of mining for diamonds. So I'm assuming that when people find diamonds, they would go and like dig a giant mine. Is that right? Yeah. So giant strip mines, and and these could be a mile wide. You know, if you're digging a a hole a mile wide, uh, you can see that from space. I mean, that's how big these, these strip mines are. And the environmental impact is one that for a long time, not a lot of people were focused on. Um, and I think due to the human rights abuses that have been historically associated with diamond mining and diamond production, uh, that got a lot of the limelight and, and people really weren't paying as much attention to the environmental impact, which is quite significant. So, you know, when you, when you remove all of that earth from the ground, no one's putting it back, you know, they're not backfilling these, these strip mines. Uh, so now you've, you've got a pockmark in the surface of the earth that's there forever right? Uh, you've, you've now just severely damaged this local ecology. Uh, when you're unearthing certain minerals and, and rainwater falls and mixes with these minerals, it can actually leach uh, certain contaminants into groundwater tables. Uh, so uh, acid mine runoff is, is one uh, well-known environmental uh, you know, detriment from, from mining. And, uh, you know, there's also the release of a ton of carbon as well as other emissions. PM 2.5 uh, air particulate is, is actually a, a rather important one to mention. Um, a lot of people don't realize this, but PM 2.5 air particulate causes more premature deaths due to health complications than opioid overdoses and traffic accidents combined in the United States every single year. So air pollution matters to everyone and every living being on this planet that has lungs. 
You know, if you breathe the air, if you rely on the air to survive, PM 2.5 air particulate should be a concern of yours. And, you know, there's a, there's tons and tons of PM 2.5 emitted into the atmosphere by diamond miners every single year on top of all of the regular carbon emissions related to diamond production. So while, while the industry and certain players in the industry have loved, love calling mine diamonds natural, there's nothing natural about digging these big holes and, and going through all of this to pull them out of the ground. The amount of soil mm -hmm. that you have to remove for a single one carat diamond is enough to fill the average American living room. So imagine just filling up your entire living room full of dirt just to find one little single carat of diamond. I mean, that's, that's the scale and impact we're talking about here. So it's not that great for the environment. And then you did mention something too about like human rights. And uh, if you're listening, you might remember the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, Blood Diamond. So I'm I'm assuming that you've seen that, right, Ryan? Of course. I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite fond of the movie. I think it does. It for did a great movie. job. It's Sad. a great movie. Great movie. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Leonardo DiCaprio. And, and, uh, and I, I think that what that movie achieved in terms of generating consumer awareness um, it was fantastic for the industry. And, and it really helped kind of spur action. Uh, the industry adopted what is called the Kimberly process to prevent quote unquote blood diamonds from entering the market. There's just a problem. Uh, things have changed on the ground in parts of Africa where diamonds are being uh, mined and, and produced and, and the Kimberly process has not evolved with the times, right? So, so prior, a blood diamond was a diamond that was essentially being produced and sold into the market in order to fund local warlords in parts of Africa who were fighting against the entrenched established local governments, right? There had to be some type of open conflict happening where lives were being lost in order for that diamond to be considered a, a blood diamond and be stopped by the Kimberly process. Here we are in 2021 and we don't have the same violence necessarily, but, you know, we have operations that are, are relying on child labor for one, you know, where we have, you know, children who are, you know, young teens uh, who are doing backbreaking manual labor for a, not a whole lot of money, stuff that we would certainly not approve of here in the United States. And if that's the case, why should we be okay with it elsewhere in the world? And, you know, we, we firmly believe that although they may not be quote unquote blood diamonds, they are still full of conflict. And, uh, and that's why I'm a huge proponent of shifting away from uh, mining diamonds in any way, shape, or form. What is the Kimberly process? So the Kimberly process was, was something that was put in place uh, effectively to limit, if not prevent, uh, any lab-grown, or sorry, uh, conflict diamonds from entering the market. So it's a, it's a number of different protocols that were essentially uh, you know, voted on and adopted by the industry uh, to, to stop these warlords in Africa from being able to profit uh, off of the you know the backs of of children and and or people who are being forced into manual labor um, all to to really fund these you know insurgencies essentially so um, Kimberly process just doesn't cover certain things that frankly should be covered and that's why we, we do think that it's a it's a flawed process a flawed process. So diamonds can be grown in the lab as well. Now, I think I've read that your process is even better for the, the environment, but what, what are traditionally lab-grown diamonds? Like, how do you do that, and why is your process better? So this is a great question. I'm a huge proponent of, of man-made diamonds in general because they're a step in the right direction for the industry, right? So we know when you open a new diamond mine, the 
Kimberlite deposit has already been surveyed. You've come in, you've done your geological surveys. You, you said you had a friend whose father might've done that type of work. So they would come in, they would take the ground, you know, core samples and they'd be able to understand, all right, there's probably this much diamond in the ground. And then they would spend X amount of years excavating it. And we know now based on all of the geological surveys that have been done is 70% of today's operating mines will close by 2040. Right, so the, the number of mine diamonds are, are going to be dwindling, and that number is already you know, dropping from 2017, where we hit peak diamond output. Uh, so over the course of the next 20 years, half of the, the diamonds that are produced every year will disappear. So we're kind of going to be forced to adopt lab-grown diamonds and man-made diamonds because that is the only way we're going to be able to find them in, in the volume. They, they disappear? Well, they're, they're going away. We're running out. We're, we're, oh, like we're sent in the crust or like yeah. So earth. essentially we've, we've identified Kimberlite deposits. We've set up diamond mines over those deposits and we're, we're now depleting the Kimberlite to the degree where the mines are no longer profitable. Um, and, and we'll be closing. Some of those mine closures will happen over the course of the next couple of years. Some have already closed and, and many more will continue to close over the course of the next two decades. So, so I, I, the- I was only mentioning that to, to set the stage for, for regular lab-grown diamonds. So we know yeah. that regular lab-grown diamonds or man-made diamonds in general are the future of this industry. And the challenge that I have with regular lab-grown diamonds is twofold. One, the vast majority of, of man-made diamonds today are coming out of parts of Asia where environmental protections may not be um, contemplated and considered as, as much as they would be, you know, in parts of the Western world, um, the power, there's a lot of energy that's required to produce a diamond in a, in a, in a laboratory environment. And that power does not always come from clean sources, especially when it's being produced overseas. Uh, so these are, these are further con- contributions to carbon emissions. You know, if you're generating power off of coal or even natural gas, you're emitting a bunch of carbon for every kilowatt of power that's generated. And that needs to be factored in. And then even if you were to replace that with sustainable power, right? Okay, we're powered by solar, we're powered by wind, we're powered by hydro. Your feedstock, your raw ingredient is that fossil fuel that I mentioned earlier. So no matter how sustainable you are with respect to your energy, you're still promoting the fossil fuel industry because you have to procure that fossil fuel in order to make your diamonds. The carbon is coming from the ground. So, it, you know, you, you can't realistically consider yourself to be truly sustainable if you're continuing to patronize the oil and gas industry and buy their, their goods. So for us, we cut the oil and gas industry completely out of the equation. We're, we're streamlining our operations so that the electrons that power all of our machines are coming from as many sustainable sources as possible. By 2023, our goal is to be uh, completely carbon negative with respect to our power supply chain. We'll re- we will be generating power on site uh, and actually returning excess power to our local grid, which is great. You know, bringing more renewable energy to, to the local, uh, to you know, the local and uh, you know neighborhood where we're where we're based. And then uh, on top of that, we don't need fossil carbon to make our diamonds. We are we are synthesizing our own hydrocarbon from the air. So uh, we are addressing head on the concerns with lab grown diamond as it pertains to true sustainability, because we believe that sustainability is a mark of modern luxury, and you know, it, you need to be able to be unimpeachable when it comes to how you're producing your goods and, you know, the claims that you're making. And we think that, you know, we, we would trust ourselves much more to do this than to trust someone else. And that's why we're doing this. So lab diamonds are made from fossil fuels? Correct. 
Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So obviously we can see why uh, yours would, would take a different, uh, a different approach, right? With taking the carbon out of the air and then, and making it that way. Where are you located? So uh, right now we're, we're kind of at this interesting early phase in the life of the company. We actually have a distributed team due to the pandemic, which is, uh, has been interesting and, and we've certainly acclimated. Uh, so our base of operations is split between three different locations, um, predominantly two, and I'm not including everyone else's apartments and, <laughs> you know, working from home. But uh, we, we do have one location where our first process is happening, and that's in Europe. And then we have our final process where the diamonds are grown here in the United States. Cool. Um, and so I noticed that Elon Musk put out a tweet a while ago saying that he was going to offer a prize for anyone who could uh, come up with a, a carbon capture solution. Did you end up applying for that at all? So the, the details of that are actually uh, to be released on Earth Day. Um, so they've, they've put out some preliminary information with space, uh, sorry, with a uh, XPRIZE, and uh, we have some contacts over the XPRIZE. Um, we're, we're certainly in tune with what's going on. As I mentioned before, we don't do the upfront carbon collection, right? We're leveraging a, a partner who's developed that upfront tech stack. So whether or not we get into our own direct air capture you know, technology and, and develop that on our own would be the limiting factor as to whether or not we would be able to participate in that contest most likely, but it's super exciting. I mean, it's bringing a lot of attention to the, the, the field of decarbonization and, you know, negative emissions technologies. We're super excited about, you know, Elon's hundred million dollar pledge. I, I believe this is the, the largest private uh, incentive prize for something like this ever. So it's just a, it's a really exciting time to be working in the climate space. Mm-hmm. And so if we were to put numbers on these, like let's say there was a, a typical diamond. So if you're listening, if you can imagine someone's got a, a diamond ring, right? Um, and I know those vary in sizes, but <laughs> um, just give us a ballpark here. So how much carbon would be pulled out of the atmosphere for a typical diamond ring? So I'll, I'll set the stage by talking a little bit more about like mine diamonds and regular lab-grown diamonds. So there's a, there's a bit of debate as to what the exact emissions footprint is for mine diamonds and lab grown diamonds. But typically uh, we could, we could put it a, a range on it of between 500 kilograms and one ton of carbon emissions. And that does not include other harmful emissions besides carbon emissions, right? So that that's the baseline. We need it to be better than that. And in fact, we go way better. Um, so we pull all of this carbon out of the air through our partner. We take that carbon, we convert it into our hydrocarbon, we, we embed it into, you know, crystalline carbon form, right? So now that, that carbon that makes up our diamonds, every atom of carbon came directly from the atmosphere. Um, we'll probably end up selling uh, some of the hydrocarbon as a specialty gas. It'll be a carbon neutral, you know, environmentally advantage alternative to fossil fuels. Uh, and then part of the diamond that gets quote unquote lost in the cutting and polishing process, um, just because it doesn't become the final gemstone doesn't mean it's still not diamond made from air. And we pulverize that into various degrees of fineness and, and it's sold as a, an industrial cutting and polishing agent once we have enough of it. Um, so there's a number of different ways we're, we're, we're bucketing things. But if I had to talk in broad strokes about the net impact, we've made a commitment to extract 20 metric tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere for every single carat of diamond we sell. So if you were to come and buy a two carat engagement ring, if it was a solitaire and it was just two carats on the nose, we would be extracting 40 metric tons of CO2 from the air. So to put that in perspective, for the average American, our annual carbon emissions is about 16 metric tons. <clears throat> so if you go and you buy a, a two carat engagement ring from 
ether and we're extracting 40 metric tons of carbon dioxide from the air with that purchase you've just offset the next two and a half years of your own personal carbon budget and that's super exciting for us it gives it gives consumers a way to have a real outsized impact without having to introduce a whole lot of friction you don't really have to do much you just have to buy from you know something that you were probably already going to buy from a different brand so rather than buying from you know one of the legacy you know luxury jewelry brands buy from ether buy from a brand that has the same values that you do if you care about the environment if you care about human rights abuses then align yourself and patronize a brand that stands for those same values and you're going to have a tremendous amount of impact um and and that's actually calculated if you go on our website uh, when you're checking out uh, depending on what style you have and if there are small accent stones you actually get a a, a number right, right right above the uh the checkout button that shows what the net impact is for that purchase so we're super excited about being transparent around that and you know we like to operate with radical transparency we, we do believe that that's something that aligns with you know the way consumers are looking to shop these days Mm -hmm. So diamonds, I would say, are most famous for rings, right? So engagement rings and uh, wedding rings, right? Um, so I guess more engagement, but there there are also a lot of other uses for diamonds. So things like saws, like they're a very hard material, so um, they can put them around saws and then they can cut through uh, different materials. So are you, you just focus specifically on jewelry, right, Ether? So that's actually what I was alluding to just just uh, earlier. The industrial cutting and polishing compound I was mentioning, that's that's what's used to embed into uh, saws, blades, all different types of, uh, it's used for a, a wide, wide range of industrial cutting and polishing applications. Uh, there are there are other really interesting applications for diamond that, are, that skew more, uh, you know, in terms of advanced technology and R&D. It's used for quantum computing research, uh, advanced medical procedures. Uh, it's being used to test different types of fertility treatments. Diamond is a super material. Uh, the reason we're, we're using it for jewelry predominantly up front is mostly to build awareness because, you know, consumers don't hear about all the different really interesting applications of diamond nearly as much as they would encounter a consumer jewelry brand. So for us, this is a way of, of bringing a really cool and sexy story to market and enticing consumers so that we can give them a hook. We can give them something that enables them to participate in, you know, combating climate change. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really neat that there are so many uses for diamonds. Is it the hardest thing in, on earth? I'm not sure. Yes. It's a 10 on the most scale. It's the, it's the hardest known compound. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, because of the way diamonds are made in a laboratory environment, uh, they're made under more consistent conditions. When diamonds formed in the Earth's crust, it was, you know, it was madness. It was chaos. So you, you oftentimes will get pockets of softness or brittleness in a in a diamond that comes from the ground, uh, whereas a diamond from a, a lab is a little bit more uh, consistent throughout, and that actually makes it a superior cutting and polishing uh, compound. So so it actually has superior properties if it comes from a lab versus the ground, and that's something that we're pretty excited about. That's actually really cool because sometimes in the environmental world, there's this like nature versus humans. And some people think humans are a virus and I don't think so at all. And when I was in the Amazon jungle, I was walking around with these people who were born in the jungle and we had lunch and then they take their seeds and they carefully and meticulously with their hands, like pull apart the seeds and they spread it around so that they'll grow again. Right. So I clearly saw that humans were kind of working with nature and they were making nature better actually um, by spreading these seeds around and stuff like that. Um, so it's kind of neat that even diamonds, we can almost make better than sometimes nature can. So that's, that's kind of a cool way of, of looking at things. 
I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the way the way I have to look out into the future and plan for how we're going to be doing this, you know, we set very lofty goals to do exactly that. We want to make sure that we can not only offset the amount of carbon emitted by the entire global diamond trade. I think we can we can hit that, uh, you know, within the next five to ten years. Um, I I want to then go beyond and extract all of the historical legacy carbon that has been emitted by the diamond trade over the last century. So that's that's our goal. We want to use technology as a change agent to come in and do something really powerful. Yes, humans plus tech. And I think that we can really clean things up and uh, still still make sure that people are taken care of and live good lives, right? And so, of course, we talked earlier in the show about the aspect of, um, you know, the blood diamond or the conflict diamond and how this would mitigate uh, that stuff as well, right? So um, pretty cool stuff going on here. So Ryan, tell us a little bit about you. So how did you get interested in diamonds and how did you get interested in sustainability? So... Well, I'll take diamonds first. Uh, I started working in the jewelry industry, I guess it was 2011. Yeah, so going back a decade now, uh, which is where I, I met my co-founder, Dan. as one of my one of my co-founders. Um, Dan and I both worked in product development for a, a company called David Yerman. Uh, it's a you know, luxury jewelry brand. They have an international footprint. And we were working out of the headquarters in, uh, in Tribeca in Manhattan, New York. And, and I, I, I fell in love with the industry. But as I learned more about the industry over my over my tenure at DY, I, I learned more about you know where we were getting our gold and where we were getting our diamonds. Not not David Yerman in particular, but the, the industry at large. And uh, and it was something that didn't really sit right with me. But I I, I hadn't yet been I don't want to say radicalized, but I hadn't yet been you know fully pulled into the world of climate. And and that didn't happen until probably 2017. Um, if you'll remember in 2017, we had a, a number of hurricanes hit Florida and Texas and Puerto Rico, the islands. And uh, it just so happened that I knew uh, someone in the islands who lost his business. The, the building was completely just taken off the foundation. Uh, a friend of mine who uh, was actually now an investor in the company uh, had his... Uh, his mother-in-law's property flood. And I think he had a, a, a new Harley in the garage and, and, you know, they had a bunch of personal damage that they, they suffered. Uh, a, a former classmate of mine from Puerto Rico uh, had, had a number of uh, significant challenges, including a, a loss uh, of one of his direct family members. So all of this kind of happened very quickly. And it was something that like I couldn't shake at the time. Um, I wanted to do something about it. I was running another company, my previous startup. And, and uh, it was a, connected safety product company for the motorcycle market. So we, we rallied our user base and we, we did a, uh, a charity motorcycle ride and all of the proceeds went to, you know, offer uh, disaster relief essentially. And, and we, we deployed that through a couple different charities and I got hooked. You know, I, I just, I felt empowered. I felt like we were doing something really good. And later after we sold that business, I knew that I wanted to continue doing good. And, and I wanted that to be my legacy and, and uh, my, then girlfriend, now wife, bought me a book uh, called Drawdown and uh, started reading about various decarbonization initiatives that were happening around the world. That's actually how I learned about direct air capture. And, uh, and you know, that's where Dan and I were chatting and had the epiphany. You know, if, if what's warming our planet and destabilizing our climate is carbon, and that's the same as what makes these beautiful, shiny rocks that we all know and love, like, is there a chemistry we could employ to turn one into the other? Is there some kind of modern alchemy we can engage in? And uh, and that was the basis for, for how we got started and, and ultimately how we built what would ultimately become Ether. 
That's pretty cool. That's a, a, a pretty cool story, I think. And um, so what about your, like, did you, did you have a special education or anything before you got into this? So I, I do have a mechanical engineering degree. Um, oh, wow. and, and, and much of what I studied during my mechanical engineering degree with relation to material science uh, directly relates to a lot of the work that I've done in my career. Um, when I was at David Yerman, uh, one, of the, one of the things that I, I focused on was integrating non-traditional materials into the industry, right? So um, materials like Gibeon meteorite. The Gibeon meteorite broke up over Africa several millennia ago. It's got this really cool internal structure. So if you slice it the right way and acid etch that stone, it reveals uh, what's called the Wyman-Statten pattern. It's this almost circuit board looking pattern inside the rock and it's naturally occurring. It's beautiful, but it's a ferrous metal and it will rust if you leave it out to the elements. You know, you don't have to leave it out in the rain, but if you leave it on your desk for a few days, it could get some surface rust. So how do you make fine jewelry, you know, uh, from, a, from a material like that? Well, it, material science. So, you know, doing things to, to bring in exotic materials into the jewelry industry is something that I've spent a considerable amount of time on in my career. And, and a lot of that leverages my engineering degree. Cool. Well, was there anything else you wanted to add um, about? Yeah, we, we, we covered a lot. Um, this was fun. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Um, this is really cool. So thank you for coming on the show and telling us all about this really cool uh, project that you have, Ryan. That was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, if we can get out there and educate some consumers about, you know, the, the, the difference between what we're doing and, and what exists out there today, I think that's, uh, that's something that's going to benefit Mother Earth. So I'm, I'm excited that you had me. Thanks for, uh, for giving me some time to, uh, to say my piece. Thank you. That was Ryan Shearman. He's the founder and CEO of Ether Diamonds. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.